Welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our guest today is David Alsobrook, president of the Alabama Historical Association for 2017-2018 and author of Southside, Eufaula's Cotton Mill Village and Its People, 1890 to 1945, published by Mercer University Press in 2017. David, thank you for joining us today. I'm happy to be here, Marty. It's an honor and a pleasure to chat with you about Southside and other topics. David, go ahead and tell us about Southside. Tell us about the book and what is it you hope to accomplish with it? Well, when I set out to write this book several years ago, so I wanted to to write a book that people would actually read. I wanted it to be a popular history. And in addition to that, I wanted to give voice to the voiceless, to the unlettered people who lived and toiled in this small mill community, which was just a segment of the larger town of Eufaula. Virtually nothing had written specifically about this particular mill community. I certainly didn't enter this project without looking at what other people had written. And fortunately, Wayne Flint had written a great deal in his Poor But Proud and his other works about the Eufaula Mill workers and had used the WPA life histories, which included interviews with some of my ancestors, such as my great-grandfather, John Thomas Alsobrook, who worked in the Kaige Mills in Eufaula. And Wayne also did a lot of analysis of the type of chief executive that Donald Comer was, who, of course, was ultimately the president of Avondale Mills after his father, Governor B.B. Comer, died in 1927. But anyway, Robert Flew Ellen had written about the mill workers in a very general kind of way in, in his book on Eufaula. Uh, I think the fact that Robert grew up in old Eufaula on the bluff, but also spent a lot of time at the Kaige Community House, gave him a certain type of insight into the place that was known as Southside, and he participated in a lot of the social programs and band and music programs of the community house. That's one reason that he wrote with great affection about the people that he called Lintheads. More than anything else, I think what I wanted to do, Marty, was encourage a conversation today about Southside among the descendants of the Mill families, as well as those who live in the other part of town. Based on the anecdotal evidence thus far, I think this is happening. I hope it will continue for a long time. I've heard from several people who read the book, and they said they've talked to their children and grandchildren about the story, and I've been very encouraged by this response to the book. Tell us about the man with his backside to Southside. That's a fascinating story. Morton Brian Wharton was his name. He's a fascinating figure in Eufaula history. He is a Baptist patriarch. He was born in 1839 in Virginia, and he died in 1908 in Atlanta. But he served as the pastor of the First Baptist Church in downtown Eufaula on two occasions, once during Reconstruction and then again during the late 19th, early 20th century, before his death in 1908. His statue was erected in 1911, and it for Southsiders, it became a symbol of how they felt they'd been excluded from old Eufaula society and the threat of life there. The thing that's true, though, is there's no evidence that Reverend Wharton was particularly antagonistic toward male families. 
he had the prejudice that was typical of his day that the uh, male families didn't want to associate with the churchgoers in the downtown portion of Eufaula. But the nickname that was given him, the man with his backside to south side, exemplifies how powerful perception can be and how we remember our history. Because even though he did not overtly discriminate against uh, the people who lived in Southside, that was the nickname that he acquired from the mill families who went to mill number one, the big mill, and, and mill number three, the little mill, each day, and could see his statue, which faced north and stood right in front of the First Baptist Church. History's been unfair to him because, by all accounts, he was very erudite. He wrote a number of hymns. He wrote a lot of very scholarly studies, and by every account that I've read, he was much beloved and respected by most of the people in Eufaula. Uh, I once asked my grandmother, what was his name? This was when I was just a kid, and she said, his name is unimportant. That statue facing north just tells you all you need to know about how they felt about us. That was Reverend Wharton. So this split between Old Eufaula and Southside is kind of a two-way street here, isn't it? A absolutely. You know, bitterness is a funny thing. You don't have to know it's true if you feel it's true. The people that lived in the Mill Village definitely felt like they had been discriminated against. They felt like they were looked down upon. They felt like they weren't given a fair shot by the people of Old Eufaula. So things like the statue just symbolized and became entrenched in the psyche of the people who lived in the mill village. And I think it's quite likely that on some occasions they probably magnified those perceived slights uh, more than there was any reality to them. But at the same time, there was some discrimination, was there not? I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think it became firmly entrenched in the late 1880s on through the early 1900s when Donald Comer had taken over the operation of the cotton mills in, in Eufaula, despite every effort he made to try to mitigate that circumstance, the pattern was pretty much in place. It's very similar to the fact that by the late 19th century, Eufaula's version of segregation, Jim Crow, was well entrenched. And so essentially you had two groups of people who were essentially considered socially inferior to the rest of the people in town. It showed up in the way the teachers in the public schools dealt with Southsiders. It showed up in the Eufaula Daily Times that William Jelks edited. It, it just sort of permeated the society. It's the sort of thing that is not well documented in, in standard historical sources, but the oral tradition certainly is alive and well when it comes to pointing out cases of discrimination. Shifting gears here, Southside would not have existed had it not been for the cotton mill business in Eufaula. How was that cotton mill business structured? Was it the same as in other places? Was it different? Can you speak to this? The first cotton mill came to Eufaula very late compared to other parts of the deep south, especially up in the Carolinas. The first real cotton mill was, was called the Eufaula Cotton Mill. A wounded Confederate veteran named John Wesley Tullis established and funded the first mill that was built there in the late 1880s and was up and running by 1889-1890. So there was one cotton mill there. It was not like in places like Huntsville and Selma and Columbus, Georgia, and other parts of Alabama in which you had northern money put into mills that really thrived throughout the late 19th, early 20th century. 
it was definitely a hometown, homegrown cotton mill. And so as a result, the mill village that grew up around it was not like those that were found in some of those other well-established places where they came in and built all the houses, built the churches, built the recreational centers, built the company stores and things like that, and, and had that regimented, ticky-tack look that everything was built in the same boring, identical fashion. The Kaigi Mills, the two that were in Ufala, the one that was in Union Springs, and the one that was later in Ozark, were essentially subsidiaries of the vast Avondale Mill empire that the Comer family had established beginning in the late 1890s. And eventually they were part and parcel of Avondale Mills, even though they never lost that that distinguishing name of Kaigi, which is Creek. And I have no idea exactly what the origins of the Creek name are. What role did the mill business play in creating social institutions for the benefit of the residents of Southside? This is very similar to welfare capitalism as it was practiced in the 1920s. It played a vital role in that because so many of these mill families, as you know from your scholarship in agricultural history, they migrated to a place like Eufaula from the country. They came from lonely farm existences. They really didn't have anything to stabilize their social life except their religion that they brought with them. They were primarily Baptist and Methodist. The two so-called mission churches that were established in Southside in the early 1890s, the Second Baptist Church and the Washington Street Methodist Church, both were funded and built by the two downtown Baptist and Methodist churches. Donald Comer, once he took over the mills around 1908-1909, he saw that money from the commissaries of those mills was funneled equally to both of those so-called mission churches. So initially, beginning in the 1890s all the way up until World War I, the social amenities associated with Southside and the mill village all flowed out of the churches. The churches were like two bookends in this small community with Washington Street Methodist just below Ufala, and then the Second Baptist Church right on the edge of Ufala Street, adjacent to where many African Americans live. And so sandwiched in between these two churches is where the life of the community flowed. The activities uh, socially and recreationally all centered around the lives of the churches. Well, that changed around the time of World War One. There was a community house phenomenon that grew out of World War One and the desire to make sure that troops in training camps had ready access to YMCA, YWCA activities, and different uh, social and recreational amenities. So the entire community house development was centered around education. It was centered around recreation. It was centered around athletics. And Donald Comer bought into that in a big way. I think he'd learned a lot from the Avondale Mills experience in Birmingham and Sylacauga and, and in Stevenson up in North Alabama where they all had community houses. And they built a community house that was one of the best in the entire mill system of Avondale. It had bands for all ages, all different types of musical programs. It had a lending library. It had educational programs. It had Boy Scout troops. It had programs for girls and boys. Some youngsters in Southside literally spent 
much of the night when they weren't in school at the community house. Donald Comer came out of the tradition of the Methodist Church that was very tied in with the social gospel movement and the belief that you had to do more than just nurture the souls of people. You also had to take care of their creature needs, creature comforts. You had to make sure they had food and clothing. They were able physically and mentally to live and move forward. So the Cuyahoga Community House, in a sense, didn't necessarily replace the social activities of the two mission churches. The Community House really contributed to the social life of Southside. But without the Community House, I think the, the village experience in follow would have been entirely different. The Community House building still stands. Is that correct? There's a little piece of the band hall that's still there. It was converted into a, a real estate office and a law office, but you're right, it's still there. It's still being used. And that was just one portion of the building that was there. Like I said, this was the band hall. But there were living quarters for teachers and a community house director that Donald Comer personally hired on each occasion when he filled that slot. These were usually very gifted women who had gone to Scarrett Methodist Training School in Kansas City and then later in Nashville, who also were followers of the social gospel movement, who had very strong religious beliefs and loved dealing with the children and the people of Southside and seeing that they had every type of social and educational and recreational amenity that they could conceive of. There was a living space for the director there. Uh, there was a men's recreation hall that had showers and lockers and places to play cards and listen to the radio. The musical programs were big. They had it uh, in the park area. You can still see where this was located. There was a very nice bandstand and seats on the grass that were contoured so people could sit there and listen to band performances by the different Kagi orchestras and bands. There was a playground with all kinds of playground equipment on it. Florida DeWar, who was one of the gifted social workers and directors that Donald Comer hired, came to Eufaula in 1920 from Sylacauga, where she'd worked in the Avondale kindergarten system there. She'd been a social worker in different places around the country. She'd been trained at Scarrett. From Donald Comer's perspective, she was the ideal person to be his community house director. More than anything else, she loved those children. She nurtured them. She gave them everything that anybody possibly could to see that their lives were enriched beyond just working in the mills. And, and she did the same thing for their mothers and fathers and, and grandparents. One of the interesting things that she did, she contracted with a local electrician to install electrical lighting on the grounds in the 1920s to ensure that mill families would have an opportunity to come participate in the educational and recreational facilities at night. So in some of the photographs of the community house, you can actually see the overhead lighting. She left in 1925 to, to be married, and she returned to her native Florida and later went back to teaching, which had been her earlier career, as well as a social worker. And then she passed away in 1940 when she was about 60. Florida Noir was typical of the employees that Donald Comer hired personally to work in his community houses. Uh, he handpicked these women and, he, and the men who worked there, too. And when one left, then he would search for another one. Sounds like he funded them more or less adequately. Did the money come from Comer in the mill? 
it came directly from him. I mean, he approved every expenditure for community houses throughout his Avondale system, and he would move these people around from place to place. You know, Florida Dewar, in addition to being in Silicaga, she had also worked at the so-called mother mill at Avondale in Birmingham as a kindergarten teacher in the early 1900s before she went and worked in a social worker's job out in San Francisco at a settlement house. So, I mean, she was very experienced and, and very enlightened for her time as well, too. She had very progressive ideas about race, about the role of women in society, about education. And I think she touched a certain chord in him. Donald Comer found a soulmate in Florida Dewar, I think. She had a strong influence on him. I think she influenced him later to take a stance against child labor. By the time of the New Deal, he was an unabashed supporter of doing away completely with child labor, which was very progressive for the time, especially from a mill owner who had depended on the labor of women and children for so many years. That was Donald Comer. Comer also used this social work activity to bypass unions, didn't he? Donald Comer was was not without some imperfections. I certainly don't want to paint him as a saint. Uh, he was much beloved among his workers. They called him Mr. Donald or the boss. In the WPA interviews, my grandmother, Alma Alsabrooks, Aunt Carrie Snipes, said we wouldn't fight against Mr. Donald. We'd fight for him. This was after the general strike of 1934-35, the textile strike. She meant that they would fight against people who tried to organize them. He was definitely anti-union. This was something that he never backed off on at any point. During the general textile strike, the Kaigi Mill workers stayed on the job. Some of the Avondale workers in Stevenson and up in the, in the Mother Mill in Avondale walked off the job. Not many, just a, I think about two or 300. But that really did not make Mr. Donald very happy. And so he cut back on the social programs of the Central Mill at Avondale in Birmingham, and he moved the corporate headquarters of Avondale to Sylacauga. So if he had a blind spot, it was that he did not think that there was a need for union organization in his mills. And he said on more than one occasion to his stockholders, he said, if my workers vote to unionize, then I will liquidate. He made no bones about it. The other thing was he was a staunch prohibitionist. He could be downright preachy about the horrors of demon rum, which was a little bit ironic since so many of his workers loved John Barleycorn. That was one of their favorite recreational activities when they weren't working. You asked me about the funding. When he established the first Kagi community house around World War One, he actually, out of his own pocket, bought the first uniforms for the band members in 1918. And that was the way he worked. When the first baseball teams at the mill appeared in the 1920s, he just either wrote them a check or just paid cash for the uniforms and the equipment. That was the way he did business. Uh, if somebody said, boy, it'd be nice if we had a radio in the community house, then Comer Jennings or somebody else who worked for him would bring a radio in there and it would just show up. Just whatever the people needed, he gave it to them. That was Mr. Tom. What now has happened to the mills? Well, there are no mills. <laughs> I mean, that's the smarty pants answer to it. Uh, not long ago, I was at a book event up in the valley and driving around in Lynette and Shawmut up in that area. 
and it's really kind of depressing to see the remnants of those mill villages and those factories. They're long gone. In the case of the Avondale and Kyagi mills, they were sold to another owner in the late 70s and, and mid-80s. Uh, just a pressure from synthetic goods and cheaper cotton goods that were being imported from Asia, India, and places like that, I think, essentially doomed textile mills in the South. That's a very simplistic answer, and I'm sure Wayne Flint could give you a much more sophisticated answer than I can. But by the mid-'80s, they were gone, and, and along with them went the life of the mill village. If you visit Southside today, it's just a series of uh, of little shopping malls and my grandparents' house at 508 South Eufaula Avenue now is an auto parts place. Mill number one no longer exists. There's a bank up there next to it, and it's a historic Chattahoochee Commission marker, thank goodness, that was erected two or three years ago. Mill number three is crumbling and falling apart, and I understand somebody recently bought that, so it's going to the wrecking ball. David, these barriers between Old Eufaula and Southside have broken down. How did that happen? I wanted to talk about the factors that actually led to the complete collapse of the social barriers between Old Eufaula and Southside. And so that's why in this book I focused on things like what happened during the Great Depression in terms of bringing those barriers down when everybody has been reduced to his or her basic necessities of life and they're all struggling just to find out where the next meal is coming from. It really doesn't matter what your name is or where you live. And I think World War II furthered that because the war fell equally on both parts of town without regard to whether or not you were the son of a textile operative. I also mentioned the fact that it was the Kaigu Community House programs themselves that became popular across town that also helped hasten the demise of social barriers. Uh, Robert Fluellen is a prime example of that. He lived in Oyufala. And yet he participated fully and enthusiastically in the programs of the community house without any talk of who lived where. And I think the final factor that really helped complete the eradication of the barriers between Southside and Oyufala was the growing popularity of high school athletics in the 20s and 30s, and especially football, because it reached a point that the city fathers and the civic leaders didn't particularly care where you lived as long as you were a good athlete. What has the reaction been to your book? Gratifying, I think is the best way to put it. When I wrote this book, I didn't know how it was going to be received. I thought that I would get a very strong backlash from, oh, you follow. And I haven't gotten that. I've actually had people whose ancestors were among the pioneers of you follow. Their reaction has been, Thank you so much for pointing all this out. I've learned some things from this book that I didn't know. So the reaction out of the descendants of Old Eufaula has been quite fascinating. But that's one reaction. The second reaction is I wrote this book primarily for the descendants of the Mill families. And there are a lot of them, Marty. And I didn't realize how many there were until I wrote this book. I hear from them via email. I get letters from them. I get phone calls. And they tell me stories. That's the thing. I wish they had told me these stories before I wrote the book. More than anything else, I enjoy the give and take and the dialogues with the people who have come to my book events. Because I think when you have a dialogue like that, that's when learning really takes place. That's when we acquire more knowledge about our past. Do you have any other project to enhance yeah. this or even to go in a different direction? 
Well, uh, yeah. Um, one of the things that I've been doing, and I've been, I've been real excited about this, Mercer is interested in a photo album of Southside Photos. Was I collected probably 150 or 200 photos for this book that I didn't didn't use. Only about 35 or 40 are in there. I've begun putting those together, so I, hopefully another couple of years I will come out with a photo book that will include all these photographs that people keep sending me. So I'm getting photographs from people who read the book and said, well, you know, I have some photographs. I was hopeful that this is what would happen. People would say, well, gosh, I've got some just like that. So they've shared those with me. Hopefully I'll get some more photographs when I go to Eufaula. There's a lady there who's expressed an interest in, in doing some type of exhibit to honor the people who worked in the mills in Eufaula. We'll certainly see where that goes. The other project that Mercer is also interested in, I'm working on a memoir of my 30 years working with presidential libraries and several different presidents and their families. So that's going to probably take another two or three years. I've been working off and on on that. I'm going to read a paper as part of the Alabama Historical Association year that I spent as president on that topic. And I've tentatively titled it Portrait of the Archivist as a Young Man. <laughs> In a way, this is going to be a preliminary paper for this larger memoir. I'm going to write on the whole presidential library's experience, but I'm going to talk about how I became interested in history. My archival story will tell about the Auburn experience. It'll talk about the National Archives experience. It'll talk about my brief time working for Milo Howard at uh, the Alabama Department of Archives and History and the mid-70s, what that experience was like. But, but like I said, it's going to be called uh, <laughs> Portrait of the Archivist as a Young Man. So uh, I'm sure I'll get some hee-haws out of that. And so even here, as the archivist is no longer a young man, he's interested in a lot of different projects that have been percolating along in my brain for so many years. So that's what I've been doing. David, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Marty, it's been a pleasure. And I certainly look forward to talking to you again sometime when we have other topics of mutual interest that we can discuss. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at City Stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org. Thank you.